This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of TKA periprosthetic fracture from the recon section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. TKA periprosthetic fractures are a complication of knee arthroplasty that may involve the distal femur, the proximal tibia, or the patella. Diagnosis can be made with plain radiographs. CT can be helpful in surgical planning to assess for bone stock. Treatment can be non-operative or operative depending on location of the fracture, implant stability, available bone stock, and patient comorbidities. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as anatomic location, TKA periprosthetic fractures can be divided into distal femur periprosthetic fractures, proximal tibia periprosthetic fractures, and patellar fractures. Moving on to the etiology of TKA periprosthetic fractures, as far as timing, periprosthetic fractures can be sustained intraoperatively or postoperatively. In terms of intraoperative fractures, medial femoral condyle fractures are the most common. General risk factors for TKA periprosthetic fracture include poor bone quality, mechanical stress risers, and neurological disorders. Poor bone quality can be secondary to age, steroid use, rheumatoid arthritis, and stress shielding. Examples of mechanical stress risers include screw holes, local osteolysis, and stiffness. Examples of neurological disorders include epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, cerebellar ataxia, myasthenia gravis, polio, and cerebral palsy. Now let's talk about distal femur periprosthetic fractures in a bit more detail. The incidence of these injuries is 0.3 to 2.5%. Fracture-specific risk factors include anterior femoral notching, which is debatable, mismatch of the elastic modulus between the metal implant and the femoral cortex, and rotationally constrained components. Classification systems for distal femur periprosthetic fractures include the Near and Associates classification from 1967, the DeJoya and Rubash classification from 1991, the Chen and Associates classification from 1994, the Lewis and Rohrbeck classification from 1997, and the Sue and Associates classification of supracondylar fractures of the distal femur. Know that the Lewis and Rohrbeck is most commonly used. So starting with the Near and Associates classification from 1967, this is divided into three types. Type 1 is non-displaced, which is defined as less than 5 millimeters of displacement and or less than 5 degrees of angulation. Type 2 is considered displaced greater than 1 centimeter, and type 2 can be further subdivided into type 2A and type 2B. Type 2A is displaced greater than 1 centimeter with lateral femoral shaft displacement, while type 2B is displaced greater than 1 centimeter with medial femoral shaft displacement. Type 3 is displaced and comminuted. Moving on to the DeJoya and Rubash classification from 1991, this is divided into three groups. Group 1 is extra-articular and non-displaced, which again is defined as less than 5 millimeters and or less than 5 degrees of angulation. Group 2 is defined as extra-articular and displaced, which is defined as greater than 5 millimeters and or greater than 5 degrees of angulation. And group 3 is characterized as loss of cortical contact or angulated 10 degrees and may have an intercondylar or T-shaped component. Moving on to the Chen and Associates classification from 1994, this is divided into two types. Type 1 is non-displaced, and type 2 is displaced and or comminuted. Moving on to the Lewis and Rohrbeck classification from 1997, which again is the most commonly used, this is divided into three types. Type 1 is non-displaced and the component is intact. Type 2 is displaced with the component intact. And type 3 is displaced with the component loose or failing. Finally, moving on to the Sue and Associates classification of supracondylar fractures of the distal femur, this is divided into three types. Type 1 is a fracture proximal to the femoral component. In type 2, the fracture originates at the proximal aspect of the femoral component and extends proximally. 
and in type 3, any part of the fracture line is distal to the upper edge of the anterior flange of the femoral component. As far as treatment of distal femur periprosthetic fractures, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes casting or bracing, and this is indicated for non-displaced fractures with a stable prosthesis. Operative options include an antegrade intramedullary nail, retrograde intramedullary nail, ORIF with a fixed angle device, revision to a long-stem prosthesis, or a distal femoral replacement. Indications for an antegrade intramedullary nail is for a supracondylar fracture proximal to the femoral component, for example, a SU type 1. As far as a retrograde intramedullary nail, as far as technical considerations, there must be at least two distal interlocking screws. Be sure to use an end cap to lock the most distal screw if available. Know that the femoral component may cause the starting point to be more posterior than normal and lead to hyperextension at the fracture site. Remember that the nail must be inserted deep enough and not protrude in order to not abrade on the patellar patellar component. Indications for a retrograde intramedullary nail include an intact-slash-stable prosthesis with an open box designed to accommodate the nail, fracture proximal to the femoral component, for example a SU-type 1, or a fracture that originates at the proximal femoral component and extends proximally, for example a SU-type 2. Moving on to an RIF with a fixed angle device, this is indicated for intact-slash-stable prosthesis. It's also indicated for a Lewis Rohrbach 2 or a SU-types 1 or 2, which is unable to accommodate an intramedullary device, and a fracture distal to the flange of the anterior femoral component, which is a SU type 3. As far as techniques, you can use a condylar butcher's plate, which is non-locking, locking supracondylar slash periarticular plate, or a blade plate slash dynamic condylar screw. Know that a condylar butcher's plate, which is non-locking, does not resist varus collapse. A locking supracondylar slash periarticular plate will have polyaxial screws that allow the screws to be directed into the best bone before locking it into the plate and can avoid the femoral component. Finally, a blade plate slash dynamic condylar screw can be difficult to get adequate fixation around a posterior stabilized implant. As far as complications with an ORIF with a fixed angle device, you can have non-union or malunion. As far as non-union, there is an increased risk in plating by an extensile lateral approach compared with a submuscular approach. As far as malunion, there's an increased risk with a minimally invasive approach. Moving on to revision to a long stem prosthesis, this is indicated in the setting of a loose femoral component or for a Lewis Rohrbach type 3 or a SU type 3 with poor bone stock. Finally, moving on to a distal femoral replacement, this is indicated for elderly patients with loose or malpositioned components and poor bone stock or for a SU type 3. Advantages of a distal femoral replacement includes immediate weight bearing and decreased operative time of the procedure. Moving on to tibial periprosthetic fractures, the incidence is 0.4 to 1.7%. Fracture-specific risk factors include prior tibial tubercle osteotomy, component loosening, component malposition, and insertion of a long-stem tibial component. The classification for a tibial periprosthetic fracture is the Felix and Associates classification of periprosthetic fractures of the tibia associated with total knee arthroplasty, and this is divided into four types. Type 1 is a fracture of the tibial plateau. Type 2 is a fracture adjacent to the tibial stem. Type 3 is fracture of the tibial shaft distal to the component. And type 4 is a fracture of the tibial tubercle. Treatment of tibial periprosthetic fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes casting or bracing, which is indicated for non-displaced fractures with a stable prosthesis. Operative options include ORIF, which is indicated for unstable fractures with a stable prosthesis. Finally, a long stem revision prosthesis is indicated for displaced fractures with a loose tibial component.
Moving on to patellar periprosthetic fractures, the incidence is 0.2% to 21% in resurfaced patellas and 0.05% in unresurfaced patellas. Fracture-specific risk factors include patellar osteonecrosis, asymmetric resection of the patella, inappropriate thickness of the patella, and implant-related factors like a central single-peg implant, uncemented fixation, metal backing on the patella, and an inset patellar component. The classification of patellar periprosthetic fractures include the Goldberg classification and the Ortiguera and Berry classification of postoperative periprosthetic patella fractures. The Goldberg classification has four types. Type 1 corresponds to the fracture not involving the implant-slash-cement interface or quadriceps mechanism. Type 2 is a fracture involving the implant-slash-cement interface and or quadriceps mechanism. Type 3 can be divided into two subtypes. Type A is an inferior pole fracture with a patellar ligament rupture, while type B is an inferior pole fracture without a patellar ligament rupture. Finally, type 4 is all types with fracture dislocations. Moving on to the Ortiguera and Berry classification of postoperative periprosthetic patella fractures, this can be divided into three types. Type 1 will have an intact extensor mechanism and the component will be stable. Type 2 will have a disrupted extensor mechanism with a component that is either stable or loose. Type 3 can be divided into two subtypes, type 3A and type 3B. Both will have intact extensor mechanisms. However, in type 3A, the component will be loose with reasonable bone stock with a patellar thickness of greater than or equal to 10 millimeters. While in type 3B, this will also have a loose component with poor bone stock with a patellar thickness of less than 10 millimeters and marked comminution. Treatment of patellar periprosthetic fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes casting or bracing and extension, and indications include stable implants with an intact extensor mechanism, as well as non-displaced fractures. Operative indications include a loose patellar component and extensor mechanism disruption. As far as techniques, options include an ORIF with or without component revision, partial patellectomy with tendon repair, patellar resection, arthroplasty, and fixation, and total patellectomy, and know that indications for each of these have not been clearly defined. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, which of the following is true regarding intraoperative fractures during total knee arthroplasty? And the choices are one, they occur more commonly in cruciate retaining total knee replacements. Two, fractures of the medial femoral condyle are the most common fracture type. Three, fractures of the patella are the most common fracture type. Four, most can be treated without additional fixation at the time of surgery. And five, tibial fractures are more common than femoral fractures. The correct answer to this question is two, fractures of the medial femoral condyle are the most common fracture type. So fractures of the medial femoral condyle are the most common type of intraoperative fracture during a total knee arthroplasty. Intraoperative fractures during total knee replacement are rare, but usually requiring alterations in surgical technique once they occur. The most common time for fractures to occur is during exposure and bone preparation, with fracture during trialing being the next most common. Fractures occur more commonly in posterior cruciate substituting designs, likely due to the box cut. Osteoporosis, female gender, chronic steroid use, advanced age, rheumatoid arthritis, and neurologic disorders are risk factors for postoperative fracture, but are also thought to be risk factors for intraoperative fractures. Alden et al. reviewed 17,389 primary total knee arthroplasties and found an intraoperative fracture rate of 0.39%. Of the 67 fractures, 49 were femur fractures, 18 were tibia fractures, and none were patella fractures. 
They recommend careful surgical technique in patients at high risk for fracture to avoid such a complication. Sharkey et al. reviewed 10 intraoperative femoral fractures during primary cementless total hip arthroplasty. They matched these with 20 patients who did not have this complication. At follow-up, there were no differences found between the two groups. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, they occur more commonly in cruciate retaining total knee replacements is incorrect, as fractures occur more commonly in cruciate substituting total knee replacements due to the box cut. Answer 3, fractures of the patellar are the most common fracture type is incorrect, as intraoperative fractures of the patellar are quite rare. In the series that we just mentioned, they had no instances of patellar fracture. Answer 4, most can be treated without additional fixation at the time of surgery is incorrect as most fractures require treatment consisting of wires, screws, and or plates. And finally, answer 5, tibial fractures are more common than femoral fractures is incorrect as actually femoral fractures are more common than tibial fractures during total knee arthroplasty. And moving on to the final question, a 73-year-old female underwent total knee arthroplasty 10 years ago. She sustained a proximal tibial shaft periprosthetic fracture after a ground-level fall. Radiographs showed that the fracture involves the tibial component stem with loosening of the tibial component. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Open reduction and internal fixation of the tibia. 2. External fixation. 3. Intramedullary rod fixation. 4. Revision with the long stem tibial component that bypasses the fracture. And 5. Fracture bracing. The correct answer to this question is for revision with the long stem tibial component that bypasses the fracture. So revision with the long stem tibial component that bypasses the fracture is an appropriate treatment for tibial shaft fracture at the level of the implant with evidence of implant loosening. Hadukowicz et al. present a level 5 review that states a periprosthetic fracture that involves the stem of a component with evidence of loosening requires revision. This most common revision type is with the long stem press fit component that bypasses the fracture by at least two cortical diameters. Kim et al. present a level 5 review including a classification system and treatment algorithms. They state that type 2 fractures are defined as those occurring with good bone stock and being reducible but have loose or malpositioned components. They recommend that these fractures are treated by revision arthroplasty. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, open reduction and internal fixation of the tibia is incorrect as ORIF alone is the appropriate treatment for periprosthetic fractures without component loosening. Answer 2, external fixation is incorrect, as X-fix is not the most appropriate answer choice. Answer 3, intramedullary fixation is incorrect, as intramedullary fixation can be used for femoral periprosthetic fractures when the component is not loose. And finally, answer 5, fracture bracing is incorrect, as fracture bracing or casting is indicated for stable fractures with well-fixed components. That's all for this review about TKA periprosthetic fracture. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.